0: Welcome to Climate History, the podcast on what the past can tell us about the present and the future of climate change. I'm Emma Mosswild, PhD student in Environmental History at Georgetown University.
1: And I'm Dagmar De Groot, Associate Professor of Environmental History at Georgetown.
0: Today, we're joined by Professor Bathsheba DeMuth, Assistant Professor of Environmental History at Brown University. Professor DeMuth specializes in the lands and seas of the Russian and North American Arctic. Her interests in northern environments and cultures began when she was 18, and moved to the village of Old Crow in the Yukon, where she spent several years training sled dogs. In the years since, she has visited and lived in Arctic communities across Eurasia and North America. She has a B.A. and M.A. from Brown University and an M.A. and Ph.D. from the University of California, Berkeley. Her writing has appeared in publications from the American Historical Review to the New Yorker. Her first book, Floating Coast, An Environmental History of the Bering Strait, is just out with Norton.
1: Professor DeMuth, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: So I want to start by spending a little bit of time on your background, uh, which is quite unusual and compelling for an academic, and I think uh, part of what makes you such a striking writer and uh, scholar. So can you tell us why you decided to become a sled dog musher, and what did being a musher teach you?
2: So those are both good questions. I did not know when I was 18 that I was going to become a sled dog musher. Mm. Um, What I did know when I I sort of started on this adventure that ended up actually coloring all of my academic work subsequently and sort of all of my life's work subsequently um, was that I did not know what I wanted to study in college. Um, Like many 18-year-olds, I think I I really didn't have a sense of what I wanted to be when I grew up. Uh, And I convinced my parents that college was too expensive and took too much time to just sort of weighed in without really knowing that and so that I should take a gap year. And this was before gap years became, I think they've they've become more institutionalized over time. Sure. There's kind of more supports for students who want to do this between high school and college. And in 1999, there were not a lot of options. Um, and I ended up working with this very ad hoc organization in Massachusetts that basically brokered a list of places that were willing to take on interns who had a high school diploma and nothing else. Um, And from this, I basically created this itinerary where I was going to go around the world. I was going to start in the Arctic, and then I was going to go to Costa Rica and a bunch of other places. Um, The short version of the story is that I have still never been to Costa Rica (laughs) (laughs) Uh, because I showed up in the Arctic and I ended up staying there for more than one gap year. Um, I stayed for a little over two years. Um, And I really did so because of my main job, which was training sled dogs. Which I didn't know anything about when I got there. Uh, the learning curve was a learning precipice because um, <laughs> I didn't, you know, I had pet dogs growing up, but I didn't really understand what a working human dog relationship was like. And I had a lot of very romantic images of what being in a kind of wilderness environment was, but I didn't have a lot of practical experience because I was from Iowa. So wilderness low. Romance high, (laughs) um, and those positions kind of reversed themselves when I arrived in this little village in the Yukon,
1: Old Crow, Old Crow, Mm.
2: which is about 80 miles north of the Arctic Circle and about 100 miles south of the Beaufort Sea, Mm -hmm. and about 100 miles from a road. Um, So it's pretty remote. Has about 200 people, most of whom are are Gwich'in, which is the indigenous nation of that space. Um, And my primary dog, our job was to take care of this dog team, and. That's what I did pretty much day in and day out. And in the summer, that meant a lot of salmon fishing and some hunting. And in the winter, that meant you know, going out and training the dogs for longer and longer distances. Um, and at first, I was absolutely terrified of these dogs. Like I, <laughs> they're not pets, right? They're working animals. They're pretty wolfy in comparison to a they lot of... They look very wolfy. They look pretty <laughs> wolfy. Um, and they have their own social world, right? So people are part of that world. But, you know... My host family had about 40 dogs, so they had dogs they liked, they had dogs they disliked, Mm -hmm. they had, you know, kind of personalities and things they were working out within their own world. Um, And I wasn't used to kind of dealing with with dogs who weren't just completely focused on people. Um, But as I started kind of learning how to work with them, and frankly, they taught me more than vice versa, um, and through that was able to spend just enormous amounts of time alone in, you know, what people in the Arctic call the bush, which is, you know, anywhere outside of town. People um, in Canada, too. People in Canada, too. <laughs> yeah, so in Alaska and Canada, it's, you know, the bush is the kind of... The, the word. And actually in Africa. Um, mm, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I would, by the by the time I'd been there for like eight months, would take the dogs on these runs that were 70 or 100 miles, you know, out in one direction. Sometimes I'd camp with people or camp on my own and then then bring the team back in. Um, didn't have a radio, you know. If things went wrong, the you know the possible repercussions were pretty severe,
1: mm.
2: uh, which made being a college student really easy. I didn't worry too much about my grades. <laughs> um, they seem, that seemed pretty straightforward, right? <laughs> but I go fine. Um, the standards for failure were a little bit more intense. Um,
1: were you lonely in the
2: Arctic? Um, no, I wasn't lonely. Um, I wasn't lonely, I didn't mind the dark and I didn't mind the cold, which are, I think, probably the three questions people <laughs> ask me the most because, mm-hmm. you know, it's north of the Arctic Circle so in the winter the sun just doesn't mm-hmm. come mm-hmm. up mm-hmm. Uh, for a while. But the winter for the dogs is the best, the best time, right? You know, their mm-hmm. kind of optimal running temperature is 20 or 30 degrees below zero. Um, that's when there's snow on the ground so that you can really go anywhere. There's trail and there's no mosquitoes, which in the Arctic... The summer really decreases the quality of life, so winter is actually the best season, and you just get used to working with a headlamp. Um, I think that's only the first part of your question, actually. Yeah. <laughs> well, I this is
1: good now. actually, because I, I had some follow up questions okay. so I can ask you now. Um, so you spent three years in. English. Yeah. Doing two two. something. Yeah. Um, and I think those experiences flow throughout all of your work, um, but perhaps especially your book. Um, so. You know there's a long history of white scholars parachuting into the arctic appropriating indigenous knowledge forgetting about indigenous knowledge supposedly um, you engage in a very different way obviously with uh, indigenous knowledge um, and peoples um, how is that informed by your experiences in old crow
2: i think in a couple of ways um I think first and foremost, because I moved there when I was 18, right? so pretty young, and mm-hmm. in some ways, the age at which most of us learn the, the really core ways in which we encounter the world, right? Mm-hmm. Like, those first couple of years of college, for most people, I think are really consequential in terms of the the kinds of frameworks in which you start to imagine the, the universe operating. Um, and I didn't think about it at the time, but I was very much being taught to understand the world... Um, in the terms that made sense in the Arctic and in the terms that made sense in this community. And those were terms in which the idea that people have the last word about what's going on in the world was just an unbelievably laughable concept, right? It, it's a sort of a patent fiction when you're out alone in the Arctic that people have some unique degree of agency. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I wouldn't even have had that vocabulary for it, right? I wasn't thinking in... Those terms, those are words that I have learned to kind of graft on to mm. that worldview subsequently so I can translate it sort of outward from my experience to a broader audience. But um, it, it really changed the way that I thought about what being a person was. And that being a person, partly because of how my host family and my the community that I was in understood the world, and partly just because of the world itself, um, was much more one in which People were one of many kinds of beings that were making decisions and influencing the course of events. And frankly, it wasn't until I was done graduate school and looked back on sort of the, the first draft of what would become my first book that I realized how saturated it was in that way of understanding things. And I didn't I didn't understand how different that was or weird it might seem to people who hadn't spent these really formative years in that place. Um, so it in some ways it's a book that comes out of that that place and that, that set of experiences um, without me even knowing it because it so changed how I understood hmm. the operation of the world itself.
0: Wow. Talking about your first book, it has this, this sense of place kind of woven through the writing and the content. Can you talk a little bit about how important it is to have a sense of place in writing when, when you're talking about past environments as well as, as present ones?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question, and it's one, it's one I wish, in some ways, historians talked about more, because I think that many of us write from, from a particular place, yeah. and that what enlivens the work or inspires the work to begin with is having lived in a place or have some sort of connection with it. Um, and for me, I I came to writing this okay. book and the dissertation that it emerged from with an enormous sense of responsibility toward the place because I. I actually really remember very vividly this moment when I was out fishing with my host father and we were talking about the salmon run and how many you know salmon we had and um, and him saying really unequivocally that I was the last generation to be able to physically experience the Arctic as it has been known for the majority of human history and sort of the remembered history um, in that part of the Arctic because it was changing so quickly. And so this was 20 years ago. So the, the things that have changed there because of climate change are really quite profound. So I've known from, you know, from the time I was a teenager basically that the the place that I cared about most in the world was also disappearing in the form that I had come to it, know it uh, when I was quite young. Um, and therefore I felt very responsible to telling it in a way that that place itself was really central um, in some sense of, of kind of just what the place means, right? What all the different elements that come into it existing um was really at the forefront of my mind when I was doing the research for this and, and kind of trying to to pull this story together um so I think I think that's what the place kind of meant to me and, and just being there you know it makes it easier to write about places when you've seen them and have some experience mm-hmm. of them and you can listen to people who have lived there for longer than you um and who have ancestors who have lived there you know for millennia and Sort of share that piece of it too.
1: What does the place mean?
2: I think it means different different things to different people. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't. I think I don't think it has a singular meaning,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, and it has different meanings to different beings. Right? Mm-hmm. It's home for a lot of people, and I think that that's probably the most. I think that's the piece that when you write about the Arctic from outside of it, is easy to forget. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of first and foremost, and. It's not my home, right? It's it's not sort of my patrimony in a really important way, um, but it is for many people.
1: I think we often talk when we talk about the vanishing Arctic, right, about the consequences, mostly for people at lower latitudes, right? Um, white people, frankly. Um, when you think about it, I would imagine, well, you probably think about that too, but you probably think about it very differently, right? About all these systems that are vanishing, these ways of knowing that are vanishing. Do you think we should talk about that more? How should we talk about that?
2: I mean, I think what we should do is actually listen to the people who have been talking about that for a long time. Mm. Um, That there are, you know, communities of knowledge keepers and communities of, of scholars in the Arctic who have been kind of watching climate change for a long time and not just climate change, right? So if you spend a lot of time in the Arctic, this is the most recent and perhaps the most lasting and consequential, of a long series of colonial endeavors, right? And so it it actually has a very different valence when you think about climate change um, coming after the destruction of many of the megafauna species, so coming after the the near eradication of both bowhead whales and walruses in the Western Arctic, or Western if you're an American, Eastern if you're Russian. Um, The Pacific Arctic might be the easiest way to put that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know that that's like a massive change to those ecosystems that people who live there experienced and survived. Um, and more or less simultaneously with that came the introduction of diseases that were incredibly destructive to indigenous communities. Um, and which you know, these communities have gone through massive kind of reorientation and concentration and movement as a result of losing somewhere between 50 and 75 percent of their population at the end of the 19th century. And that you know that changes what climate change looks like, right? I think for many people living, you know, the way you live—if you live in Georgetown—it looks like the first calamity, mm-hmm. and it does not look like the first calamity if you've lived in the Arctic mm-hmm. for a while.
1: Yeah, I heard. Um, I forgot where I heard it now, but I think this is actually quite a common trope. Um, um, but the this idea that the apocalypse has already happened, like for many indigenous peoples across. Mm-hmm.
2: I think Kyle White is mm. um, a scholar who's really articulated this um, for, for people living in the contiguous United States very strongly, that this is not, you know, that the, the rhetoric of apocalypse
0: it requires a certain subject position. Mm. So you um, talked a little bit about um, the experiences that have informed your work, but your work is also informed by all of these different sources in a pretty diverse range of them, scientific and more traditionally historical how do you balance using so many different kinds of sources in in work like this?
2: So there's a, um, there's a Gertrude Stein quote that's like emblazoned on the side of the Brown University English department that says, then there is using everything. Mm -hmm. Um, And I went to Brown as an undergrad and now I teach there. And so I see this thing and have sort of had it in mind for a long time. And that's basically how I feel about writing about this part of the world. And in part because... It's a massive geography in terms of space, but it's in terms of population, not enormous. Um, And what that means is that very different than if you were writing an environmental history of Manhattan, right, where you would absolutely just be drowning in people's recollections and oral history and written history and bureaucratic documents and environmental stuff. Mm. It's really a place where I felt like I had sort of the freedom to try to use everything because... Um, I, I, the the task of kind of reading what had been written was not quite as daunting. And it's not like I'm making any pretenses to have read it all, right? There's, human beings produce enormous numbers of stories and pieces of paper um, in the process of of going about life, but it felt kind of more possible. Um, and I think in, in addition to that, because I really wanted to represent that the place is home to people, but also to other kinds of beings, that really required using every possible kind of source I could, right? To try to figure out, you know, what a bowhead whale is doing, is partly a question of using the observations of the people who know them best, which are, you know, indigenous folks who have been watching and observing and thinking with whales for, you know, 2,000 plus years, um, and then also kind of more contemporary. Uh, Behavioral science approaches, which often actually are developed very much in tandem with uh, kind of indigenous understandings, in the best examples at least. Um, and so, some of it is just to try to flush out the world, right? And and to do that for beings that can't speak um, in any human language. I wish they could. I'd really like to interview a bowhead whale,
1: but <laughs> not yet possible. Not
2: yet possible. Um, <laughs> Um, that that to me really necessitated using a, a really wide array of sources.
0: And you're telling these stories of of non-human actors, um, charismatic megafauna, especially um, like we were talking about earlier, whales and walruses. Um, and why um, why is it effective and why is it important to tell stories from these perspectives? Um, so. I
2: think I started the the sort of structure that the book falls into where most of the chapters, I think actually all of the chapters, open from the perspective of a being that isn't a person. Mm-hmm. Basically on instinct. Um, and then later had to come up for a justification for why they were set out that way. Which is really to think about you know, history is usually told it's not just told from the victor's perspective, it's told from the human perspective. And that to try to kind of just shift that over a couple a couple notches to imagine that these kind of historical narratives really include other kinds of, um, of beings. And I think in the, this particular case, the job was made easy for me because so many of the beings that it made sense to tell these stories around were kind of charismatic, uh, animals where we do know, you know, quite a bit about them and they have these really sort of complex lives that, that can be fleshed out. Um, but I think one of the chapters opens talking about sea ice, right? Which isn't an animal at all. Um, and yet is, absolutely critical to every coastal community ecological and human um and and to me just kind of animating that in a way that made people who don't get to have the real privilege of seeing it up close could sort of imagine that yeah this is important um Mm -hmm. and it sort of deserves existence on its own terms and it's it's connected to all of these other things right it's a part of this kind of world in which every being is always transforming into something else and Mm if you remove one of those kind of locuses of transformation, it's a real loss, um, not just to people,
0: but to the, the kind of function of the whole community. So is it fair then to think of animals as actors in human history, would you say?
2: I would. I mean I know not everybody agrees with that. <laughs> um and, you know, that's fine. Um I don't I don't pretend that I can please everyone. Um but I think that in some ways, the ways in which disciplinary knowledge has been set up in the Western Academy has really impoverished our imagination for what a community is, uh, for what our ethical responsibilities are, and for sort of what matters, right? Um, if you if you can only imagine that what matters is people, you've cut out so much of life um, that, that that seems like uh, an empirical mistake, but also one that has sort of a longer tale of consequences that um, we might want to examine.
1: Why do you think so many historians are so hesitant to embrace that kind of understanding?
2: Well, I think it goes to the, the roots of what being a humanist is, mm. right? And I, I mean, I understand the, dis- the discomfort with it because humanism is a really important bulwark and has been historically against ways of sort of scientist thinking that have been socially destructive, mm. right? And I don't want to downplay that, right? Um, we don't want to become social Darwinists because we lose sight of valuing what is particular about being human. Mm-hmm. Um, and I understand the the hesitancy to just rush to say, "Oh, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna embrace these other disciplines and the answers will be in there," because that has not always been a particularly good path to mm-hmm. go down. Um, so, I think some of it is that, um, and I think that that's those are critiques that are really. Worth listening to and thinking hard with, because I don't think they're—I don't think they should be dismissed out of hand. Mm. Um, and I think some of it is because of the sort of the, the structure of disciplines and the way in which they imagine themselves and the kind of gatekeeping work that you know, to a greater or lesser extent, we all end up doing. Um, and that—that's sort of the, the very human world of of intellectual politics. But um, I don't—I don't, I don't want to just sort of automatically say that there's. Kind of one way to do this, and there's one kind
1: of history. (laughs) (laughs) But that's kind of part of the point that there's more than one way. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So this next question is for graduate students specifically, but really anyone who's interested in academia and getting stuff published. Um, And I wanted to ask you about writing for a popular audience. Um, Both of us have done it, you a little bit more uh, than me, um, but I mean, it never would have occurred to me to write my first book for a trade press. And, and even for a really broad audience, although I had secret hopes that I would be doing that, um, what convinced you to take that risk? Because I think it is a risk um, when you're an academic. Um, and how did you go about doing it? And when I when I ask how, it's not just like the mechanics of like approaching mm-hmm. people, but also just like, how do you actually write for a popular audience? Good yeah, hey, question. A, no, <laughs> and, but they're good questions.
2: Um, so I decided... To, I think if you'd asked me early in grad school, you know, if you had your wildest dream come true, where would this book come out? I mm. probably would have said with Norton, mm. because they have such a strong track record of publishing really excellent environmental history in particular, mm. and environmental history that really stands up to the test of time, right? Mm-hmm. We all still assign nature's metropolis, mm-hmm. um, and part of that is because it's a brilliant work of history, and part of that is because it's a brilliantly written work of history mm. that... You know, I at least feel like I can assign to undergraduates and ask my parents to read. And um, I didn't know how to do that in a logistical sense when I was in grad school, and in, in fact, probably wouldn't have imagined it happening. And it took some kind of happenstance things for for things to turn out and me to end up with Norton. Um, but I think the most surprising piece of it to me is that I was not asked by my editor at Norton to change the way that the book was written at all. Mm. And in fact, the demands to simplify almost all came from professional historians, <laughs> um, not, not from members of the general public. I think that there is a tendency to um, to rather than understand historical writing as something that can have many different genres, um, some of which are public directed and some of which are journal articles that are very much directed towards specific internal conversations and should be and shouldn't necessarily be required to try to reach a broad audience, that there's kind of an assumption that audiences don't have the tolerance or the desire to That's actually true. sit with complicated thoughts. And my experience has been quite the opposite of that. mm mm-hmm. um, and I think that monographs are actually a place where that really can happen, because we have a lot of latitude for how you tell a story over, you know, two or three or 400 pages that audiences are really interested in. Like if it's interesting history, people want to read it. And those are different than the kind of very field-specific, like, I'm going to make an intervention into how this revolution is understood, or I'm going to make an intervention into how environmental history imagines this particular aspect of something. Those are both very important roles, and they're just simply different genres. Mm. Um, and I write slightly differently when I write for those two different genres, but I, I think I think of it more as a, a question of genre than a question of audience. But an academic article is a it is an argumentative performance that's about kind of acknowledging and positioning yourself amongst other scholars, and a monograph is a sustained argument over many, many pages, in which part of the argument itself can be the affective experience of reading it, Mm. Um, right? The the emotions that you have with a book are a piece of its argumentative power. The Mm. structure of the book can be part of the argument, right? The form can have some content, as Hayden White told us (laughs) (laughs) many years ago. Um, That took me back. (laughs) Right, way back. I don't even know, know if I read that in grad school, right? I think I read that as an undergrad. Um, but I think that that phrase holds a lot of work in it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't, I mean, I just think of them as as sort of different modes of doing the same
1: thing, really. I think, um, I mean, there's a lot there that's I find to be tremendous advice, but um, the one that was most difficult for me, at least, uh, to come to terms with was the idea that you don't simplify for a popular audience. Because that's definitely at first what I was trying to do, and uh, that was not a good idea. <laughs> right,
2: I think you have to clarify, mm-hmm. right? You can't, mm-hmm. you can't use yeah. shortcut words, Yeah. and you can't have
1: paragraphs that are boring. Yeah. <laughs> that's difficult advice to follow yeah. from many academics, though. <laughs> right, but I think it's,
2: you know, and, and that's why, thank goodness, there's academic publishing, so that that work that doesn't necessarily find that purchase Mm-hmm. still gets published because it's really mm-hmm. important. Um, and, you know, I think having a robust kind of academic monograph world is absolutely critical and, you know, should not be replaced by trade publishing. Mm-hmm. But I think on this, at the same breath, that authors that have work that is speaking to issues that people in the general public are really hungry to read should be encouraged to to figure out how to do that because it's it's really a part of the service that we can provide to the world, right? It's is communicating these stories and people want to read them. So,
1: yeah. And departments, anyone, department chair who's listening right now, <laughs> trade press books matter as much as any. <laughs> in fact, I would say more than most. Um, I just don't think it needs to have a hierarchy, right? Yeah. If
2: the scholarship is good, the scholarship is good.
1: Yeah. Um, although I do think there is actually a special service in reaching that kind of broad yeah. audience. Yeah. Um, but so that's that's how you write. But how do you actually like what are the mechanics? Like who do you connect with? What do you do? So
2: the mechanics in my case, like much of my life, had to do with kind of dumb luck.
1: Um... <laughs> Same here. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I, the year that I went on the job market, I interviewed for a job at Vanderbilt, and the chair of the hiring committee picked me up from the airport, and I swear the first thing he told me was, you shouldn't publish your dissertation with an academic press, you should publish it with a trade press. And I said, well, that's great, Helmut Smith, who is the chair of this committee, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> and he's like, well, I know an agent. So he sent my dissertation to an agent, and I signed with an agent um, around the time that I finished my PhD. Um, and then worked up a um, trade press proposal, which is a very different kind of object mm. than an academic uh, press proposal. And we actually shopped it and had offers from both academic presses and trade presses. Mm. And it was it was really from talking with the editor at Norton and thinking about her vision for what the book should do in the world um, that made me want to publish there. Um, and then some sense of the, the, just the sort of support that comes with a, a trade press because they have they have more staff. Um, mm. You know, the, she line edited you know the entire manuscript, mm. um, and I'm really grateful to have had that because it's um, you know good writers all have excellent editors behind them. Mm, that's
1: so true. Yeah, It takes a village.
2: Okay. It does take a village, and I think that there's a you know because only one name goes
1: on the cover, we can forget that. But yeah, acknowledgments are a lot of fun to read. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
2: All of our debts are in there. <laughs>
1: yeah. So do you do you think that everyone should try and get an agent? Like, if you're writing about a topic that has potentially broad popular appeal, is it worth trying to do that? Um, and at what stage of one's academic journey would you try?
2: I I really doubt that there's one size fits all mm. advice for that. I mean, mm-hmm. I found it helpful to have an agent. I would not have known how to, or probably would have gotten a a trade press contract without an agent. Um, And there's things that they can do on your behalf, like even within an academic press, know the editors that are likely to really respond to and Mm -hmm. get behind a particular work. I didn't have any idea in grad school that there were agents who worked almost exclusively with academics and worked with academic presses like I did did not understand that piece of the kind of publishing ecosystem at all even though it actually turns out that most of my advisors in graduate school had agents (laughs) and were working with them and like this is how they got their books done and how they got lots of pictures in their books and Mm -hmm. you know all of this stuff that was very much mystified Um, I think the piece where it gets tricky is that everybody's kind of path through academia is different and Mm -hmm. the timing is different and if you have a postdoc you don't necessarily know if you're going to have a department that's behind having a trade press. I was, you know, in a tenure-track position where the chair was 100% behind the decision to go on from the beginning. I mean, I wouldn't have done it otherwise. Yeah, um, And, you know, it was very clear that the argument that they can make to tenure and promotion because it's a press that's published all of these really important works in environmental history is very clear, um, but that's not a universal. Um, I think it's actually much more acceptable than you know, I thought it was in grad school, but yeah. I don't know if I would have done the same thing if I had had a multi-year postdoc and was just sort of shopping around, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, having an agent might have still helped just in terms of the kind of contract you get and the kind of book that that results from it. But oh, sure. it also takes a lot of time. So I think that there are lots of ways of making a good book.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I think the part I didn't understand in grad school is that you really can advocate for the book that you want to see Um, and I came to it initially from such a position of like oh my goodness will everyone anyone ever possibly publish the thing I've written me too like like this position of feeling very (laughs) unempowered about it Um, and the thing that having an agent made me realize was that actually people want to publish books Um,
1: helps have a good book too I'm sure that that helps (laughs) (laughs) yes
0: so to, to take it back to, to the content of the book in question. Um, as, as you know better than most, the Arctic is changing as we speak with extraordinary speed. Um, and once again, just as you've written about, we see these great powers with very different political and economic systems. They're vying for a potential windfall. What, if anything, um, can the past teach us about the coming century? question. Yeah. Very (laughs) straightforward answer. Um,
1: You have two minutes to answer.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's probably good. I think that um, one of the things that I find encouraging, not just about thinking about the Arctic, but about teaching environmental history more generally, is that it is so clear that people have lived in such different relationship with the world than the one we find ourselves in. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's easy in the year 2019 to imagine that there's something inevitable about this kind of high carbon, late capitalist, highly inequitable mess that we found ourselves in rather than it being the product of a series of historical contingencies and genuine power moves on the people who are in power at the moment that are not inevitable and therefore not um, permanent.
1: Mm -hmm. And
2: I think that there's a lot in environmental history that's, kind of by necessity gloomy because it it features many stories of people doing things that in hindsight seem quite regrettable um, but it's also a place where you see people learning to make different decisions mm. and and also just valuing different ways of existing that have a very different um, set of repercussions on the ecosystems in which we're set and to me that's that's not specific to a particular path but I think as a way of freeing ourselves from imagining that the only way of living a valuable life is one that looks like this right now and therefore being in a crouch kind of when we imagine having to change it and have and imagining what that change would look like um i think it it does actually free our thinking somewhat
1: mm. that's a wonderful place to end so professor Demuth, thank you so much thank once you. again yeah. <laughs>
0: To learn more about climate change in the past, present, and future, visit historicalclimatology.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Climate History. Thanks for listening to the Climate History Podcast.